I feel like it might be a little bit of an unrealistic expectation that um, just because we have all this extra time in the pandemic, some of us, you know, some people don't, some people are busier, but like, just because you have all this extra time does not necessarily mean that you're in a mental state to use it. You know, Mm. like I think, I think um, Americans in particular have this kind of pull yourself up by the bootstraps ideology. Like, well, what do you mean? You didn't want to practice. Just go practice, you know, what's wrong (laughs) with you? Just go do it. And it's like, it's a little more complicated than that. Like you have to, you have to deal with motivation. You have to deal with, um, like I said, structure and what that does. It's not the same as, as just having those social reasons, those external, you know, that I have a concert to play, you know, like that's so much more powerful. And I think pretending like that isn't the case doesn't really do anyone any favors. Welcome to the Trombone Channel. Today we have uh, John Romero, principal, or just trombone section member of the Met Opera, which is a... It's principal. Principal. Um, we have two principals. Oh. We're technically co-principals, but the title is principal. I would like to talk more about the opera side of things, but I do want to kind of lead into it. So just kind of three things we'll talk, three general things we're talking about. One is just kind of your career, where you were born, how you picked, how you picked up the trombone, why you decided on music as a career. Um, to your job at the opera and what it's like to actually play in an opera because maybe there are similarities and differences between opera and orchestra or there's no difference at all. And three is the trombone you play because let's be honest, it is no ordinary tenor trombone. Would you agree with that? Yeah, that's that's true. So where were you born and when did you first pick up the trombone? I was born in Longview, Texas, um, which if you don't know where that is, it's about two hours to the east of Dallas, Texas, um, okay. near the Texas Louisiana border. It was actually um, it has a fairly advanced band program. Um, the you know like football is really big in Texas in general. High school football, it's like high, you know you high be- school anything's big in Texas. I don't know what it right. is. <laughs> <laughs> it is a weird environment, but because of that, high school band is typically really big in Texas too. Which you know I, I think most trombonists know. But um, I started in fifth grade. Um, I actually um, started my first instrument was uh, well singing. Um, you know back in church, I would like look at the the uh, we had hymnals so i'd look at the the squiggly lines and kind of roughly figure that out you know and then uh, i started piano at, in at five and then i quit at six um and then i started band at uh fifth grade at 10 years old and that that one i is the first uh major hobby that i've ever really stuck with um mostly because i found out that i was good at it and that if i practiced really hard i'd be first chair and apparently i was extremely uh competitive and that's really what kind of kept me going all through middle school and high school yeah, I just wanted to, I had to be first chair, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, so I mean that, uh, you know, I, I don't think that would be that unusual of a story except for um, in middle school, um, there's actually kind of a, a really fun story that um, if that hadn't happened, it's very likely I wouldn't be where I'm at. Um, yeah. Our band director uh, locked a kid in the closet and then I, we got a new band director. <laughs> and And the story, the really short story behind that is that the kid was like, mouthing off and so the band director said go to my office you know and the kid gets up throws his euphonium down on the ground and like sulks off and then you know the band director's just like you know gives the finger like come here takes him by you know the small of his back directs him to the back of the room and just throws him in the tuba closet and then locks the door and i think that was supposed to only be for the rest of class which is still yeah it's still a little um iffy but he forgot about him and then left him there for the entire day. Whoa. And he was quietly uh, relocated to a different district. Um, and so we got a new band director, uh, Stephen Moss, um, who I'm still uh, friends with to, uh, to this day. I think he's teaching. Uh, actually, no, he's not teaching at the moment. He's uh, getting a doctoral degree. He's like a, 
I would call him a trombone, a, a music philanthropist. Yeah. Um, you know, he uh, he gave me free lessons because, you know, my family um, probably wouldn't have paid for them at the time because, you know, I was, they would have just said, oh, just practice. What do you need a lesson teacher for? Yeah. Not, you know, not that like uh, they didn't support me in my musical studies or anything, but, uh, you know, so he gave me free lessons. And um, I remember one of the biggest things that he did that was so influential and kind of made me really want to practice seriously was he showed me a recording of Joe Alessi yeah. playing Bluebells of Scotland. And I was like, the trombone can do that. And then he showed me the music too. Like, that's what that note looks like, you know, and, yeah. I, and it's like yeah, the four ledger lines. And I was like, is this trumpet music? You know, so um, not to mention all me. the other higher notes. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, you know, I learned double tonguing and triple tonguing and um, and range and tone and all these things that, um, you know, I think gave me a huge, huge um, advantage. And, and it's not just that it gave me an advantage. It's that it really showed me it gave me a reason to practice the trombone beyond just I want to be the best player in, yeah. in my particular small band, you know. So my moment when I when I was like, oh, wow, trauma can do that was also kind of was also a Joel Essie album. It was the Return to Sorrento album. It's always so amazing. I love the music. And yeah, I think that's I think that's a little something we share a little bit. You're taking lessons from this guy and you're already telling me you're learning so many very technical things. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I was aware at um you know, even back then that uh, I was more driven and frankly, like I, I picked up skills more quickly than a lot of my other colleagues. So why, um, do you, why do you think you got that faster than the average person? I mean, some some people in college are are banging their head against the wall at this skill and you at just young age are just kind of doing it really. Like, how did that happen? Well, you know, I, I actually have a recording of me playing Bluebells of Scotland from eighth grade, and I didn't sound that great. So mostly <laughs> part of it was that um, it actually was a little bit of naivete. Um, I think there's a big problem with um, so you get to college age, you decide you want to be a professional, you're connected, you're in the world. Yeah, you know, you know what the standards are, you know how hard that is. And that can be really frustrating when you're just you're banging your head against the wall and you don't feel like you're progressing fast enough or just enough, period. Yeah, um, I in middle school. Yeah. I, I had no, I mean, I heard the Joe Alessi album, but I didn't own it. It's not like I was like comparing myself to that mm. every day. It was mostly that I was, I, I actually, I did tell myself like right when I heard that, I was like, wow, that's amazing. I suck. <laughs> no, no, actually, uh, I said, I'm going to beat him. I'm going to be the best trombone player in the world. Bruh. You know, and, and, and it's that naivete, I think that really helped me because all I was doing was, I, I mean, I knew it was a long, long haul. Oh yeah. I was even back then I was like, okay, this is going to take like at least 20 years to get to his level, but I want to get there as fast as I can, maybe shave a few of those years off. And so I would just go into the practice room and my goals were just very simple. Like how fast can I double tongue? You know, how fast can I triple tongue? Um, how high can I play? I would have high note contests with the trumpets, you know? And I knew that was like a, a losing proposition and I usually did lose, but it was the idea of like pushing myself uh, farther than... How about an octave know, mulligan? Like if you can do a double high B flat and I do a high B flat, that that's even, I don't know. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, uh, you know, I didn't really, I, I think once I kind of learned what the standards were, once I learned what an excerpt was and then what an audition was, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, it became a lot harder to be positive about those moments because I was improving quite a bit. And I would even like, I was so motivated that I would even like skip lunch to, um, to practice in middle school to the point where the band director bought me a practice mute. So I wasn't bothering other people who would eat in the band hall. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, um, I think if I had kind of known back then, if I was more connected to the world of, you know, the orchestral world, really, the, the college level world, um, I probably would have been a little more hesitant, I think, to put that much energy into it because I was just doing it to 
not exactly have fun. I wanted to like I wanted to be the best, right? Yeah. But yeah, it yeah. was it was a much more abstract the best, you know. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's I th I think I know what you mean a little bit. It's like if you know too much, you, you start to like question like, oh well these oh well I gotta learn this little detail and not and not worry about this function or do I have the right mouthpiece, the right lead pipe, the right equipment, but and, and things that can make you go, you know, just kinda make you freeze up like and I think all you did was just like, I just wanna get better and that was it for you or yeah, I mean, it was that and a very, very strong sense of competitiveness. Mm -hmm. um, I uh, I started competing in high school region in seventh grade, so I was an eighth grader twice, which is the you know the uh, the the starting point for high school region. <laughs> and, they let, and, my, and they let you do that. Well, I you know I I was a. Uh, you know, like I said, they, they fudged my band director fudged the numbers uh, on my age a little bit, um, but I don't think they really care oh, as long as okay. you pay the, the $20 <laughs> entry fee or whatever it is. Um, Eighth grade, but oh, it's actually seventh, but don't tell anyone, <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think, I think at least in Longview, they were kind of just like, well, if you can, you know, if you can play the rep, then you deserve a shot. And I actually made, um, I remember I made seventh chair in the top band um, at all region. Um, oh, so that wow. was just competing against um, high schoolers from the area, but I did that every year and I was exposed to like I said you know very advanced music from an early age so I kind of to me um it took a while for me as a teacher to understand that not everyone responds to that the same way I did where like I like having like these giant bites to or, like I like biting off more than I can chew rather yeah um because it makes me feel like I'm making real progress when I go from it being the most impossible thing to okay I can actually kind of tackle this to some degree mm -hmm. um and uh, and so, so the, the point I'm trying to get at is that um, I think had I been in an environment with where my uh, band director wasn't pushing me quite so hard, I probably would have just gotten bored and mm -hmm. I definitely wouldn't have worked as hard. So it's also just that he knew what made me tick as a person, I think. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, once I got out of high school, there were more competitions. And I mean, honestly, like the story of my career is one of mostly just solo competitions, you know. Um, I didn't really do or I didn't I wasn't in a youth orchestra like a lot of people I wasn't uh, I didn't even audition for festivals until I got to my master's degree um, mm -hmm. or that's not true actually but near my master's degree yeah. right um, I just wanted to you know beat be, be the best at these competitions the uh, being was was being better at Joe less was being better than Joe less still at the back of your head all these years or just or did you kind of or did you kind of like morph your interest in getting better to other things as you went along and all that or yeah that's a good question um i think sometime around uh my maybe my junior Cause, year because it's of... not, it can't all just be about one person i mean because there's there's right. too many good people these days you know <laughs> you're you're and you're one of them thank you yeah. uh that's a that's a weird thought i i you know i try to uh I try to I have to grapple with that on a personal level, actually, like, oh, no, people look out to my playing and I, you know, I cracked that note. How could they, you know, <laughs> um, but uh, I mean, imposter syndrome is, is a real thing, I think, oh, in yeah. the music community, and it's being talked about more so nowadays. Um, but um, as I started really auditioning and I started playing an orchestra more and college and stuff. Um, so by the end of my undergraduate uh, degree, I think I had pretty much given up on the idea of being better than Joe Alessi. And I think that shift really came around. And I know that sounds silly to even have that goal. It's I like, know. it's, I mean, it's, it's such a heady thing. And I, I, of course, did not realize, basically what I'm saying is as I realized more and more what that actually would entail, right? You know, assuming that goal is possible, which I think some people might say it isn't, but, you know, assuming it is possible, that is, that is intense, intense work for much longer than I think, like, 
it, it would take more work than winning a job for sure, right? Oh yeah, you know, and and that's already a tough task. And so as I be, as I began to see how tough the task was of just getting an orchestral career was, on top of you know like just the sheer level of perfection, uh, you know, or close to perfection that he has, and just you know. Uh, even just like say the one goal, if I wanted to be able to play a super F like Joe Alessi, like that one alone would just take so much like intense work. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think I just, I just kind of relaxed my standards a bit. Like, and also I realized, um, most of the reason why I wanted to be better than Joe Alessi was so I could play solos the way he played them. I wanted to be able to play all the same rep he did. Um, but as I developed my musical style in the orchestral world, I realized that I don't actually, uh, I don't actually play like Joe Alessi, like in a lot of ways. And so what's the point of playing like him when you're trying to beat him? Yeah. I wanted to be myself more and more as I gain more confidence in my own sense of my own opinions, my own style. Um, but on the solo world, like I'd still like love to be able to play some of the rep he plays like, um, garden of the gods, um, I think is, uh, the piece he did with the Columbus, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, state, uh, trombone ensemble. Yeah. That piece is awesome, of course, but it's so taxing. (laughs) What was your reaction when you won first chair of Texas all state? That, that you basically conquered them all, like, who can stop me now? I don't know. <laughs> okay, so I have to talk, I have to back up uh, even before that, just a tiny bit to talk about yeah, my just arch sure. rival. I love it. Um, which, uh, this is a one-sided arch rivalry. I don't think uh, this guy even knew who I was. Um, but um, I, I got to area, I think, all four years of high school. Um, but I only made state the last year. And um, the reason was there were two players from, I think, uh, one of the Plano districts in, uh, above Dallas, yeah. Uh, Derek Hawks, and I can't remember the other guy, but uh, Derek Hawks was always first chair, and I hated it. Oh, I was so hyper-competitive. So I would literally, like, in my own practice, you might think, I have to be Derek Hawks. I have to be better than him. And, <laughs> you know, and it was it was just that, like, he, he – not just. He was ob- he obviously is a very talented guy, um, very solid player. Um, so it was, it was like uh, – he was like the this one player, I, a real option that I just could not get – like, I couldn't practice my way to be better than him. And so senior year – um, I, uh, got another, there's another serendipitous, um, band director, uh, define edition. serendipitous for me. Sure. Uh, so just like lucky, um, the universe, uh, gave me a second chance, something like oh, that. Oh, wow. Right? Okay. Yeah. So, um, David Applegate joined the, uh, trombone faculty at my high school and he, the um, trombone faculty at your high school. Wait, what? Wait, sorry, what not is... trombone faculty, band director faculty. Oh, okay. uh, but he was, he was the primary brass guy. He, he gave me a few free lessons as well, which were more like just, Hey, play something. And you know, he'd give me some tips. Mm-hmm. Um, but just, they were, they were, very, I, I just remember, um, he would just tell me like, first of all, I should also say like my modus operandi when I was practicing was What's modus operandi. Loud. Can you speak English? My, yeah, <laughs> you're right. That was too much Latin my mode of operation right? yeah the my default uh practice mind was fat high fast loud and he just pointed out like uh he would always just say yeah i mean that was okay you know it, w- it wasn't great but it was okay i mean you hit most of the notes and i was just like that is such like a takedown it's like it's not even bad it's just like I mean, that's, that's like average and so to me that was like a real eye-opener like if i have to if i want to win i have to put in real work i have to really do the slow stuff the tuning the the tone work you know fundamentals yeah that's the first time i really understood that on a real level and so it changed my practice and lo and behold i got second chair at area so that's that's good enough to make it to to all state right um, 
Yeah, senior year. Okay. Allstate uh, was also a very eye-opening experience just because even without like the, the, the chair test, the competition, mm-hmm. like you start playing in the group of like the 26 or so trombonists and it was the first time I ever heard the overtones in sound because we were all playing pretty in tune. We're all good players, you know? And I was just like, I can literally hear this this ringing and that was eye-opening to me. Um, it reminded me of the first time I played in an ensemble back in beginner band and just like, wow, it all comes together. And it was, you know, this really visceral no, no overtones. feeling. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no overtones there for sure. Um, or they, they were there. But anyway, um, so uh, anyway, so yeah, the competition happens. I thought I did OK. And then I actually get um, fourth chair overall. But the first three players, including Derek Cox, of course, um, chose to go to the orchestra. And I, I had the choice of either being last chair in the orchestra or first chair in the band. And I'm like, I didn't come here to be last chair. I'm going to be first chair. And apparently there's some stigma against that. But we played some Mackie music. We played some fun rep. I thought that was fine. And I got to sit first chair right at the edge of the stage. So you didn't and, um, actually get first chair. You just got first chair in the band because the first three other people cho- chose to get, chose to be in the real state ensemble. I don't know. Yeah, what, basically. What? I think because each person gets a choice and there's less positions in the orchestra. And usually a lot of these guys who are making first year Allstate are being taught private lessons by orchestral trombonists. Like Derek Cox was taking lessons with John Kitzman. Oh um, yeah. Like, the ex-principal of Dallas Symphony. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I think there's just, there's more prestige there apparently, but I was again, fairly naive coming from my small town and like, you know, barely having had lessons consistently. And I was just like, first chair sounds better than fourth to me. You know, <laughs> mm-hmm. okay. Towards the end of high school, you start you start to go to college. I mean, do you start thinking about like what do you want to do for a career? My parents actually were fairly supportive okay. um, when I decided to be a music major, and I decided to be a music major only after making Allstate because um, at the time it was kind of like okay, I know like I you know I'm a local hotshot, but I don't know how I stack <laughs> up against a national like uh, or international even like you know, uh, list of, of trombonists. Like I, I, I'd heard about, you know, James Markey and, uh, Christian Lindbergh at that point and how good they were at like yeah. 17, 18. And I was like, I can't stack up to that. Um, and so, um, after making all state is like, oh, okay, well maybe I'll give it a shot. And my backup was going to be computer science. Um, because I, at the, I had, uh, taught myself some programming and that was fun. And I thought, oh, you know, I could program for a video game company or Google or something. And that I might still also think you'd make a good computer programmer, honestly. Just, you know, maybe really? maybe, maybe back off on the trombone stuff and just kind of do <laughs> your programming. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. We'll see. Uh, we'll see how this uh, this whole Met thing shakes or out. Or never, but, honestly. Uh, I also, my third backup option, which was actually kind of like my, <laughs> my dream gig, was this? to be a metal guitarist. I wanted to do the dream theater route and like go to Berkeley College and learn how to be a shredder. You know, and uh, because I had actually joined a metal band in high school. You have Um, a way with words, honestly. Go on. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Um, But yeah, so I mean, I I just decided, okay, I'll be a music major. And the story of how I got in is is a really funny one. Um, To Baylor, sorry. Okay, yeah. yeah. Um, Because again, I I knew nothing about anything. I I knew that Juilliard was a music school, but I really didn't know anything about the prestige of schools, what to look for, how to test teachers that... Like, I didn't know that it was a thing that people fly out to take lessons with teachers. Like, yep. so I, um, I just, uh, I, uh, submitted applications to three colleges. Um, I think it was Baylor, SFA and UNT, um, okay. all, you know, and then, um, I just, I, I forgot I submitted to Baylor until I got a scholarship package from like academics. And I was like, oh, well, I guess I'll go here. Cause mm-hmm. they gave me the most money. And then mm-hmm. I decided to be a music major after all that happened. Wow. 
about a week before the deadline. And so I uh, I didn't want to drive there or ask my parents to do it. I thought that was a too big of an imposition for just a, an audition, just an audition for, you know, college. Yeah. And uh, so um, I recorded um, I recorded probably my Allstate etudes on a shitty computer mic from like 1985. Wow. You know, and and I made I burned a CD. And, uh, you know, the kids these days won't know what that means, but I burned a CD and uh, uh, I know set it, it off. Then I expected that if I didn't hear anything, that I was in, essentially, you know, and... How does um, that... I was like, hey, you got in or something. I was... Yeah, I was a dumb kid. Um, that's that's all I'll say about that. I was, I was, you know, I was book smart, but like very street dumb. Long story short, I was not in the music program, and apparently I sent it to the wrong department or something, um, <laughs> but... You know, so like when I show up and I'm like, hey, why can't I sign up for music classes? And they're just like, who are you? <laughs> you know, right. So um, so long story short, after a lot of back and forth, um, because I had paid my deposit for the music program, I could technically be put into the system. Um, but it was going to take until the next business day, which was a Monday, the Monday classes started. And um, and I, I had to do like an ad hoc uh, uh, audition like for for Brett Phillips and with Rudd and uh, someone else, you know, after on the, the matter of fact, after they've already accepted someone else, meaning we may have to squeeze in another guy. Right. Yeah. Uh, apparently, Brent Phillips, is, he said no initially, but apparently he looked at the Allstate records. and He's like, hmm, maybe I should, you know, give this guy a chance. Um, so, uh, yeah. So, um, yeah, basically, like I missed syllabus day. And the punchline to this story is that because of that, I was unaware of the dress code and the dress code back in Longview was just your Sunday best. Just wear a button down shirt and some long pants and shoes and, you know, that's it. And here you are in your pajamas. I don't know. Right. I mean, for all intents and purposes, it might as well have been like I I didn't realize that that people just wore tuxes apparently to these events and that I should have had one. I didn't have a tux. Day of the concert comes, I wear my Sunday best. And what's funny is that the shirt I wore, it was a yellow pinstripe shirt, the best button down I had, mm -hmm. is the shirt, it became my lucky shirt because of this incident. Oh boy. Um, and so that's actually the the shirt I wore to both the Fort Worth Symphony and Met auditions. Wow, um, cool. Yeah, but uh, yeah, one of my friends, uh, Christian Parup, he he realized that it was not a joke that I did that I wasn't joking when I said, ah, whatever, I'll just go out there, I'll look weird, you know. And so he uh, he quickly uh, ran to back to his apartment and got his spare tux that he apparently had, which was in my size, and uh, and I put he's, he's like put this on, and it's like three minutes before the concert, so I'm trying, you know, three, rushing to get what everything on. What the heck on. is this guy doing? It's like, <laughs> oh, no. right? Yeah, I yeah. Um, so the thing was, I didn't have an undershirt. And a, half the buttons from about like my, you know, chest down to like my belly button were just missing. You know? <laughs> so like so like the entire concert, I was like, you know, trying to like like I was T-Rexing trying to keep my shirt together. So I wasn't flashing people. I mean, you could have just been like, yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's like I might as well just not wear any buttons at that point. Just, you know, go full like a uh, Del Fuego, you know. <laughs> right. So. Yeah. So you do undergrad and. Um, Let's just fast forward a little bit here, unless there's something else interesting you want to share. You compete in seven, like, it says on your website, you, you competed in, like, seven, like, super serious trauma and solo competitions, including ITA, uh, American Trauma and Workshop, which was called something called differently back then. Um, can share our competitions? I mean, it's just like, you won, you won five of them, and... But as, but as I sent an email, like, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Talk to me about, like, act, talk to me about, like, what it took to actually win five really serious trauma competitions. Because how can, how does anyone do it? 
do they just not because you're you're not, you're John Romero and they're not and go find something else to do or I don't know what. Right. So I feel like this turns into a bit of a discussion of why was I better than the other players at the time, you know? And like 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 you kind of said, like any because um, anyone would have wanted to win five great grand right. competitions. I mean, so right. So um like like you were kind of implying, like, yeah, it's it's entirely possible that at any one of those wins another one of the competitors just would have been better than I could have played. And yeah. that's just how it would have been. So some of it, I think, is a little bit down to luck that, you know, I'm sure there were better players. You know, there might have been some Juilliard kid who just wasn't or, or, competing. Or, or Derek Carr could have been like, hey, it's me again. I'm going to bitch your yeah. ass. <laughs> yeah, no, it really felt like that. Like, losing to him four years in a row at this in the same way, like, it really did feel like, you know, just like, you know. <laughs> anyway, but like, uh, yeah, no, so... um. Basically, I think um, the first thing uh, there, there's really two aspects of this. I think, yeah. Um, one is that I I did have an inherent advantage to a lot of uh, players in that I got started working on my range and my faster technique and flexibility very early on, mm-hmm. and I uh, you know I I would put in two three hours a day even in middle school on just that stuff. Wow. So when it came to like you know some of the things that I think some players find more difficult, um, large leaps, um, double tonguing that kind of stuff. It's not that I was always the cleanest and I had to still work on that and fundamentals like, you know, tone. Um, but I think those those things were not nearly as scary to me. And oftentimes that's really like um, when, when you have a competition piece, it will almost always include some some technique, some double tonguing, triple tonguing, just to kind of weed out the people who can't do that. Right. Yeah. So I never had to worry about that, really. Um, and so that was an advantage. Um, so I think what I'm hearing is while you could I mean, maybe not play perfect black, but while you could like do technical things, you could improve on them. I think yeah, it's, yeah. it's like what I think. I think it was like someone said, and I think someone, some like really masterful brass pedagogue once said, like, if you can play it, that's that's great because then then it's about making it sound good or whatnot. But yeah, I think that's what yeah, I'm thinking. yeah. I think uh, I deal with this with some of my students who are more perfectionistic. Um, they will not play a lick faster than what they can do perfectly. And there's obviously a lot that is beneficial to that approach. Um, However, I do think there's some aspect of allowing imperfection in your playing to improve other aspects. Like I can double tongue at X, you know, beats per minute. And that means I can play a lick at that beats per minute. It may not be clean, but I can practice kind of some other aspects of the coordination, even if it's not entirely clean yet. Yeah. Um, and that can be confidence building to know that all I have to all I have to do, quote unquote, is is clean it up, right? Yeah. As yeah, opposed yeah. to I can't even play it this fast yet, you know. Um, so uh so that's that's the first thing. Um uh, but the second thing was um it kind of actually goes back to um uh my high school sort of teacher and senior year, David Applegate. Um, another big, I, I would go back and take lessons with him occasionally, but one other thing that he really impressed on me, um, was that musicality comes first. Musicality is king mm-hmm. that like, if you are not the, like someone might be able to play circles around you, but if you can craft a better phrase in them, what's that? Yeah. Derek. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. I, I feel like to be fair, like uh, our technical abilities are probably fairly similar. He was just always much cleaner, had better, like more put together like musical uh, interpretations. So basically like um, what I learned from David Applegate was like uh, the way he would put it is, is a couple different ways. One would be like, if there were 10 clones of you in a room and they all had the same abilities as you 
how could you differentiate yourself from them? Just be right? different. <laughs> I don't know. Well, yeah, exactly. It's like the only way you could do that is just to craft a different, ideally better musical picture, right? Because you're not going to beat them on technique. And um, and so that it sounds like a simple thing. But what I ended up um, doing, it just made me take the musical uh, crafting so much more seriously. And then the effect of that um, was that when I when I decided this is the way I want it to go, I, I felt connected to a musical mm -hmm. message and it could not go any other way or it would just be wrong. So once it was that solid, what ended up happening is that my practice became much more efficient because I had a much more solid uh, goal to shoot for. And even for technical things, um, I remember there was this one lick in uh, the Weehee competition I did in 2012 um, mm -hmm. on Love's Enchantment. It's like, oh my God, I can't even do it anymore. But anyway, it goes up to a high D. And it's like really, really just difficult. Yeah. Um, I practiced that so much because I knew it It could not be it had to be like snappy you know just like uh it had to feel effortless and and so that extra motivation from getting my musical ideas down and basically like not letting my technique dictate what i wanted musically yeah that actually gave me so much more motivation to put in the work to make it that way right. even when there are technical barriers I see. um so say for that Weehee competition, um, the other players were older than me and I had listened to whatever recordings I could find of them and they sounded very solid, you know, like um, their tone was probably a little better than mine at the time. But since it was a prior competition, I thought, okay, the one thing I can beat them on is my musical interpretation. I can play more like prior than they can because mm -hmm. I'm going to be the one who puts in that much work on interpretation. Right. But the, again, the side effect was that I actually think I ended up being the best technician as well because i had more to shoot for i had more to to kind of practice for than just like oh i just got to clean up this lick and you know there's nothing more to it than that right right right, right. i see that, yeah that, that's all that's all really interesting and i think that's all really great honestly i mean when you're winning all these competitions i mean you're and you're finally finding your sense of music like i think it's like I think throughout my the college I graduated from just recently, like when I was taking lessons from Mike Dugan, you know, like he's having me play solos and all that. I'm practicing music. I'm practicing music. Well, how do I want this to sound when I play it? Not just technique work, but also like what am I discovering as I'm playing these? And 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 I and sometimes I actually do feel like I'm, I do like find out what I'm going for. And I think it's really cool that people develop their own sense of musicality. Really, I think that's really great. So you run all those competitions, but you need a job. You need you need something that pays the bills because competition money doesn't really get you very far, really. I mean, right? It says on your website you you attempted twenty five times. Is, is this an exact number or is this like an estimate? Twenty five? Like who, who else says twenty five? Yeah, twenty five. Um, <laughs> but before winning the job that you will tell me which one it was. I remember at one point after winning the Fort Worth Symphony job, pulling out my old laptop, which had my calendar and counting, you know, by hand each in each audition I went to. And okay. that was counting smaller things like community orchestra auditions, um, you know, so um, but still, if, if I had an excerpt list and I had to fly out or drive out for it, I counted it as audition experience. Um, so uh, I think it was around 22 or 23 and then I took um, at one. I took two auditions while I was at Fort Worth Symphony: the LA Second Trombone audition mm -hmm. and the Met. So that would round it out to twenty-four or twenty-five. Okay. Um, but I could be off by a few, but it's yeah. it's somewhere up there. Okay. Okay. So, so when you won the Dallas Fort Worth Symphony job, was this the principal or second or 
something like something like the that. Fort Worth job. Um, yeah, the Fort Worth Symphony was principal. So kind of situate yourself in Fort Worth. You get yourself musically involved, teaching at high schools and students and all that. What was what was that like? Like actually, was this your first time legitimately having a work schedule as a trombonist? You gotta perform. You gotta teach. You gotta do this and that. Like, did you think you were prepared for this kind of thing, or was it challenging at first? It was honestly, uh, it it was a lot to juggle for sure. Mostly mm-hmm. with having to be at different places at different times and uh, juggling that plus a teaching schedule um, at Richland College. Um, You know, that was a little bit difficult, but honestly, schedule wise and sanity wise, it was far, far less busy than than college was for me, where I was probably pulling like 120 hour work weeks. I would wake up, practice, school, practice, practice before bed, sleep. And that was basically my life, you know, my undergrad. Um, so it was actually, um, it was actually a lot better. I actually had time to myself for once, um, and a livable wage. And that was, uh, really, um, you know, and also I had made it quote unquote, you know, so like that was really cool. Um, so, I mean, uh, I had also taught students while I was in my, uh, master's degree at Rice. Um, and so if anything, um, it, having that job allowed me to be a bit more choosy with my students. So I didn't have to deal with, you know, Timmy who, almost never showed up. And when he did, his parents, you know, wouldn't pay that whole situation, you know? Um, So that was, that was relieving. I could just drop students who didn't want to, you know, be good students um, Mm -hmm. for whatever reason. Um, But uh, you know, um, yeah, I mean, I think that answers the question. When you saw that the Met had an opening, did you have realistic expectations or did you actually think you could actually make it? I actually uh, missed the uh, the deadline to submit resumes for the Met audition, but and I only found anyway, out about what it. What the heck, honestly? <laughs> <laughs> um, and I only re- realized it because uh, that same friend, Christian Parup, who gave me the tux, you know, yeah, um, he he lives in the Fort Worth area, um, and so I think he texted me, "Hey, are you taking the Met audition?" And I was like, "Wait, what?" <laughs> you know, and so. <laughs> And so I, I check and I'm like, I'm so sorry I missed the deadline. Please have the committee, you know, like look at my resume. And so I think I was probably the very last person to be accepted. And I was like 200 or 153 on my like uh, <laughs> resume letter, you know. Uh, but no, I actually I didn't have an expectation to win. Um, you know, I this goes back to imposter syndrome. I was having a uh, the the area of difficulty I had um was in kind of uh, managing my expectation levels. Um, you know, because pre-tenure, obviously, you are fighting to earn your job still. Yeah. Every single performance, every rehearsal, every mistake can feel like, is that the one that's going to make them think, oh, this guy's unreliable, we can't give him a tenure, you know? Um, and and- we're going to end his career. You should be a computer, yeah, that computer science you were talking right. about, do that now. <laughs> Goodbye. Right, right. <laughs> Yeah, and and that's despite, you know, really succeeding at certain challenges. Um, like, my high range had become very reliable for me. I don't think I... I think I might have cracked, like, you know, maybe one out of a hundred... Not even one out of a hundred, one out of 500 high notes. Wow. You know, which as a principal player, like, that's a really good track record. It was the mid-range notes that I cracked, which was kind of funny to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never had a good mid-range. But anyway, um, so, uh, you know, like imposter syndrome is um, a tough thing to deal with. Um, so what is it to begin with? Yeah. So it's it's the feeling that um, that you're not really good enough for a situation um, like, say, a relationship or a job. And um, and people are only just being nice to you. But behind your back, you know, usually it's accompanied by thoughts that they're like, you know, just every every negative thought you think about yourself, they're thinking that times 100, oh, yeah. you know. 
like, oh, I cracked that note. You think that they go back and like, man, you know, I just I really thought John was a professional and he goes and cracks the note. And <laughs> how could we accept that in our, our illustrious orchestra? We're so good and he sucks. You know, it's like it, those thoughts sound silly when you say them out loud. Um, but those are real things that like I thought at the time and that I dealt I struggled with. And um, it has a real effect on your playing, too, because you kind of have to trust your ability to play a note to play it well. Yeah. You know, so if you th- if you're worried about whether or not it's going to be good enough constantly, you're not thinking about what you want. You're thinking about what you don't want to happen. And that's that leads to all kinds of coordinational issues. And, you know, um, and it's just it, it's just all negative thinking. And so that really builds up over time. Um so how do yeah, you so, how do you overcome that, um, or 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 have you overcome that? Yeah. No, I'm still crippled by self doubt <laughs> oh, and fear. Oh, no, no. <laughs> um, so that actually I didn't really get over it until I got to the Met, and really after I was fairly certain I'd get tenure. But just speaking of the Met audition, um, uh, in large part because of all that and just worrying that I wouldn't even get tenure at the Fort Worth Symphony. So how could I possibly expect to you know uh, win a job as big as the Met, right? Um, so my goal was I, I did really want to take it because um, it was the first principal audition that was worth taking for me. Um, that would be an improvement over Fort Worth Symphony. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I just realized at that point that I'm never going to go for second trombone auditions, even if it's in like Chicago or New York, because I'm just not a second trombone player. Whenever Chicago opens up, I mean, if that if that's ever going right, to happen, right? Yeah. But I'm just I just I decided that I'm just a principal player. That's my strength. I'm not gonna you know do second. And so this is something I have to do just to see where I stack up. You know, Mm -hmm. for me, it was more about self-discovery. Like I wanted to prove to myself that, um, that I could get past the prelims at a major audition, because that to me would at least prove that I have the basics, timing, tuning, and tone. Mm -hmm. And if I have those, then the musical interpretation part, the sheer kind of impressiveness part, I could work on that. And I could, you know, even if I never won another job, it would mean that I have at least the basics. And that was really what I was worried about. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I mean, that was uh, my motivation and that affected my practice, actually, uh, to a large degree, because um, I decided that if that was my goal, then I didn't really need to worry so much about, like, trying to sound like the Met Orchestra. Yeah. I just needed to sound like my best me in time and in tune and, in t- and with a good tone, right? Right. Because um, at the end of the day, yeah. they're not going to expect the same exact player who just left. They're like, oh, we, we need this guy. We need someone who sounds this guy. And we'll, and we'll have no problems at all. <laughs> Right. Yeah. I mean, at the end for the finals round. Yeah. I mean, given all else being equal, they will probably select someone who they think will match their section sound or their orchestra sound more so. So, I mean, there definitely is some benefit to like studying the orchestra and seeing like what what are their general tendencies? Do they play broad? Do they play snappy? You know, et cetera. Or edgy. Um, Right. Yeah. Edgy. (laughs) Like how loud is loud for them? Right. So um, for the Met, what I realized was that um, their style of playing actually was very um, similar to my own. Like it seemed very, very soft and and kind of not overly refined because the Met does play really loud. But just Mm -hmm. like it was this very vocal quality, very flexible. And given my background in solo competitions, I, I knew like, okay, I can do that. Right. I think that I think to have the balls to describe any orchestras playing i mean every anyone's any i think any orchestra's playing is largely sub, can can be largely subjective from person to person some people think the orchestra some people may think the met opera and i may be completely wrong met, some people may describe the met opera in many and all sorts of different ways but how can you be so sure that this is how it is i mean yeah <laughs> maybe, maybe i'm a dumbass i don't know <laughs> 
Well, I think um, it's that compare and contrasting, like listen to Vienna, then listen to the Met on the same lick. And, you know, uh, with regards to playing excerpts, like op opera excerpts were not a thing on my radar. So mm. almost every single opera excerpt I had to, you know, learn from scratch. And so it really was just basic interpretations like, OK, the Met plays it at about this tempo. They do rubato a little bit here, you know, so it wasn't even really so much like I, I did give you my, my interpretation of the general style. Yeah. But I wouldn't I wouldn't go so far as to say that I was an expert on what the Met, quote unquote, was yeah. or what it is even now that I played in it. Like it's um, it depends on the rep. It depends on the players who were there that day, you know. Um, but I think that flexibility and that um, that uh, that sense of cohesion and and just fluidity, vocality is something that I think even, you know, Met players would describe about the orchestra okay. and, and the role it plays what's the process for like announcing who won the audition like do they have this like gala or whatnot do they share a couple drinks like and the winner is this person or do they just feel like hey hey <laughs> hey you get over here and i was like i lost i don't know <laughs> so in my experience at the many auditions i've been to um the the usually it's the personnel manager uh orchestral manager whatever um who is the proctor but it could be a member of the orchestra you know um and they just come out and they usually matter of factly just say okay the committee wants to thank you all for coming here uh but um you know uh you all did well but we ha we have selected three finalists or we have selected the winner and that winner is so and so like it's very matter of fact you know it's not they're not drawing it out they know that it's a painful moment for a lot of people so they're not going to be like drum roll please you know? <laughs> i so, wish i also wish i think that'd be great <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it would be kind of cool, especially if you win. Um, apparently, um, I, uh, well, first of all, like I said, I didn't go there to win. So I was a little bit like shocked when I made the finals because, um, uh, you know, and, and then when I won, of course, I was like, wait, really? Because like uh, the other two players are incredible players and like, you know, they're they're. But like, I'm not known... that incredible. See ya. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, again, imposter syndrome and also just a very real like, you know, those guys had accomplished more, uh, supposedly, quote unquote, more, whatever that means. You yeah. Know? yeah. Um, they had more experience than me at auditioning and they were known audition killers, right? The kind of people were like, you know, like, I don't know if, um, you know, like, like I would show up to auditions and people would be like, oh, there's, you know, so-and-so, well, might as well pack up and go home. You know? <laughs> oh my God. So, yes. Yeah. <laughs> not, not to me, you know, um, oh, yeah, but like, yeah. you know, uh, and I won't name names. Um, oh, yeah, I don't yeah, know if that's yeah. like a sensitive subject, yes, but, yes. um, yeah. So, I mean, uh, apparently like, um, some players when they win the Met job, um, it is very matter of fact, but I think Billy, uh, Billy, um, what's his last name? I'm blanking on the name, but uh, Billy uh, principal uh, trumpet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he, uh, he apparently like screamed and like went like, woohoo and like ran down the hallway and back and stuff. Um, did, which did, I felt did like he, doing, but I didn't. Did he, oh wait, did, wait. Oh, so, so that was, that was his reaction when he won or something. I think so. From what I heard. Not oh, maybe I, th I thought, I thought that was, that was his reaction when you won. I was like, how does this guy know you? <laughs> I, we, right, I don't no. know. <laughs> yeah, that sounds but, really funny, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I kind of wish I'd have made a bigger deal, but I was just kind of in shock. I was just like, oh, okay, I, I guess I'm moving to New York now, you know? Oh boy. And, and the guys like, um, you know, typically also like, um, the, the final or the, the winner and the runner up and sometimes any other finalists will usually get invited, uh, to like, go have a drink with the committee, you know? Um, and that happened. And, um, we went uh, across the street to Fanchula's and uh, had a drink at that restaurant, and um, I had to catch a flight. Um, I wasn't I wasn't sticking around to like I assumed that I would be done. Oh, like I, 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 did you say fight or a flight? No, flight. Yeah, <laughs> I had to catch a fight because people hate people. People are so jealous. I'm gonna kick your ass that you want us and I didn't. <laughs> right. I don't know. Yeah. 
No, I, I did deal with a lot of fight or flight syndrome though during the audition, but um, uh, you know, like uh, yeah. So I mean, it's usually pretty collegial, and um, you know, they want to make you feel welcome, and um, you know, and, and in my experience with the Fort Worth Symphony, when I was on the other side of the panel, you know, it's it is it when people say that uh, audition committees want you to do your best, they want you to win. You know, like that's very true. I, I didn't hear any derisive remarks like, oh, man, did you hear that guy? Wow. What a loser, <laughs> you know, like when someone does badly, we feel bad for them. We feel bad with them, you know, because mm. it's like it's usually pretty clear they're they're having a bad day or, you know, something like that. Right. Um, well, good thing. So, you ain't getting nothing. Goodbye. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so, like, it is it is really genuinely difficult sometimes to to have to like cut people off early, but it's also kind of like we have to, you know, you have to get through the process, right? Yes. Um, yeah. And yeah, so when you have when you have three great players, as you did at the Met audition at the in the finals, and you know, obviously there were a lot more amazing players there. I saw lots of lots of people that I, I were like that that terrified me honestly. That I just kind of <laughs> I knew that would happen. Like I'm gonna see big names, you know, and I just have to think it's it's okay. I'm not here to win. I'm just gonna do my best, you know. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. So you moved to New York City, right? New York City. Yeah. And um, and knowing you're one of the co-principals of the Met Opera, do colleges start contacting you and being like, "Hey, we'd like you to be our our, our professor because because everyone knows how competitive professor jobs are." Or or do you reach out to them and say, "Hey, I'm the co-principal. Hire me. I'm I mean I mean business. Oh yeah, we'll hire you because you're a man. Yeah, well, so just know. to put some context on this, um, yeah. so uh, some of these colleges have like Grammy winning like soloists, like like yeah. think like uh, you know people who like have made real commercial success in mm -hmm. the music world, um, especially like on their jazz faculty, you know, like um, or or you know if they have like a modern music thing or even pop or something. Like, mm -hmm. um, you know, they have people who are like really successful, really famous, um, yeah. at least in that industry. So, you know, like you really have even being in the Met, you have you do have more bargaining power, of course, than someone who doesn't have that job. But it's not in my experience, it's not quite as high as you might think. And you know, it also matters like whether or not the institution, frankly, values orchestral players at all. Like, you know, trombonists are still kind of dealing a little bit with this, the hierarchy of music where like, you know, solo violinists and pianists are at the very, very top. And, yeah. you know, like orchestral players, um, section players can kind of sometimes be way down on the list. And in terms of like what the perceived value of that player is, this perceived like excellence mm. or so um, I think you still deal with that even in the Met job. Um, but I got um, my three teaching jobs in the New York area. Um, largely through Weston Sprott, who um, became dean of the Juilliard Pre-College. Um, wow. I think the second half of the first season that I was, or maybe it was, actually it was like the first season. And actually he he pulled me aside into like a, a practice room at the Met. I'm going to make your career. Here are three right, jobs yeah. for you. Enjoy them. Right. No, it was it was an amazing thing. And I again, I was kind of in shock. I was like, okay, that seems too easy. Like what's the catch here? But like he basically said, you know, Hey, uh, by the way, you know, I just want to tell you this in private before it goes, um, you know, public. But um, I'm probably I'm going to recommend you for these jobs because I have to pat, you know, blah blah blah. I'm de I'm dean of the Julia Pre College now, right? And he's saying it very because I can't do this. You got to do this before someone else takes them. I don't know. Right. Yeah. And so like, and then I'm like, oh, cool. And then he's like, <laughs> that's a big deal, by the way. I'm like, wow. You're thank gonna you get so much, Mr. Sprott. <laughs> You're going to get paid a lot. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, I mean, enjoy a fancy yeah. apartment. 
Yeah, no, I wish. I mean, uh, <laughs> I've heard of colleges like giving like ver like emeritus professors like they get their house paid for or something. I don't think what? that happens for oh Tremont players. Um, I've heard it happening only for like uh, uh, Barbara Butler and like Charlie Geyer at Rice. Oh, okay. I think a house was part of the deal for them to move from Chicago to, to Houston. Um, but, that's, that's uh, you know, that's a ways down the line. I mean, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, Rice is a great school, but yeah, I mean, having to fight Houston traffic, I'd need I need a house or something too to take mm -hmm. that deal. But um, yeah, so I mean, it, it's uh, the colleges. Uh, it is really nice. Um, it's been especially nice in the pandemic because it's basically my my biggest source of income right now. It's not as glamorous as people might make it out to be. Okay. You know, especially with these particular jobs, it's not like a university job where like you basically like you are like Brent Phillips, for example. You know, he. Um, he taught like when I was there, like 14 players and, you know, it's not quite like that. I have like three students, mm -hmm. maybe four at each place. And um, it's a lot more conservatory-esque. Okay. So you're playing at the Met Opera and is this, so this is your first legitimate opera job, right? Yes. Okay. So as you're playing in the opera, what are, so as you're playing in the opera, you've, you've played in the opera, actually, let's, let's, let's put it that way, actually. What are different, what are similarities and differences between playing in the opera and playing in an orchestra? Are there any differences at all? Can the New York Philharmonic low brass be smashed, be splat into a Met Opera low brass section, forget about the fact they're an opera and just be good? Or do they have to make some adjustments here and there? So this is a really gross oversimplification, um, but the biggest differences in my experience between playing in a symphonic orchestra and an opera orchestra um, is volume. You probably are going to play a little bit quieter on average, since you know you're you're usually in a supporting role in opera. more so. Okay, okay. Yeah, in opera. And two um, is the flexibility of timing. There's just a lot more timing things. In most symphonies, I didn't realize this, but like the sense of time is usually fairly constant. Even if it's like changing, you know, you have mixed meter or you have whatever, like the pulse is generally like fairly constant. Whereas in an opera, you can, you can change pulse immediately, dramatically. Like think of a Puccini opera, you know, like you just kind of have to know how that goes because a lot of times it's not written, let alone like when you have like, you know, the, the stereotypical... Uh, end of a cadenza for a singer. Da, 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 da. The conductor is just holding the note, and then they go dum dum bop, and you have the hit. You have the stinger, right? <laughs> That's so common in you know, especially like 18th and 19th century operas, as to be kind of a joke. But the thing is, like, you're sitting there just waiting for this quick hit that you have to like. You have to be immediate for it to sound right, at least with the Met. And and so your reflexes have to be really finely tuned, mm -hmm. and because um, theirs certainly are. And um, and it's just that, like the, somehow the the act of kind of just like having to hold your breath a little bit and just go ta, you know, it's it's a lot harder to do that in an opera setting than a symphonic one, just because. Um, what I realized is that I was kind of I was having a lot of issues with this because I kind of would like not pick a definite moment in time to play, so it would be kind of like ta, you know, and so I'd get all tense trying to like kind of play in multiple areas. And I just I realized that I just have to pick a time. And if it's late, it's late. If it's early, it's early. But you just kind of have to go, it's here. Mm -hmm. And um, and that helped tremendously. And it also it turns out that I'm not that bad at timing. Um, okay. So it usually worked out. Basically, what you're saying is like, even if you're not so sure about when something's going to happen, just be confident about it. And people are like, okay, you, you played it there. It was late, maybe. But like, but you, but you played confidently. And that's all you really can ask for, honestly. Yeah. So when did you hear from Houghton Horns that you want to be there like, oh, play these trombone etudes for these high school kids? 
and proves to the whole world that not everything on YouTube has to be shit. <laughs> that right, where, yeah. where, where it comes to teaching, like, like how to play something. Be, and 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 then what was your reaction when I kind of tried it on YouTube a little bit? Because because not every teaching video gets like a lot of views and all that. Like, t- talk to me about like your experience doing the Houghton Horn stuff. Yeah, um, working with Houghton Horns is is really great. And um, they kind of started it as just a small project. Just it wasn't really supposed to turn into a big thing. But as it's gained traction, it, it's like they're getting more people involved. They're getting um, more equipment. Um, you know, so like the first year I did it, I think. Uh, they'd done it a couple years earlier just with horn and it was done with like a zoom zoom mic and like a, not a phone camera but something basic right and so now they have like a big official setup there's wires yeah. everywhere mm-hmm. there's a soundboard you know lighting and and so like it's a whole thing um and so i kind of lucked into it at the i was in the right place at the right time with the fort worth symphony yeah. um since they are a fort worth company i think they mm-hmm. wanted to you know do patronage for that side of the dfw area um and yeah so i mean um it's really it's actually one of my most difficult gigs um, because the etudes that they pick for uh, Allstate in Texas are really fairly difficult. They're oh college-level yeah. etudes. Yeah. And, um, and and I have, like, sometimes less than a week to work all of them up, five etudes um, for ATSSB as well as TMEA. And um, that is challenging. I mean, especially considering it's usually in the summer. I'm not quite as in shape as I am during the season. And it was funny is like all the difficulties of it. Like, I feel like I do a fairly good job considering I only get like a week, maybe two to practice it. Yeah. But these high schoolers, you know, like, I guess want to feel better about themselves. And so they'll point out little tiny insignificant mistakes, you know. And like sometimes a lot of times there aren't even mistakes. It's like, oh, he's at a time there. And I'm like, have you heard of something called rubato? You know, um, and uh, if I comment, I usually am polite about it and stuff. You know, I mean, they're high schoolers, so they don't know anything. So, but like, yeah. So you get, so you get, so you get sometime practice, and, and you and you post on you po- and they post something. It's it's good, but it's not a hundred thousand percent times perfect. And maybe some high schoolers like, but this guy is not perfect. And I'm like, what am I? Well, what am I going to do? This guy, this guy right. sent me an email two weeks ago. What do you want? What do you want? Right. But um. <laughs> But uh, no, no, the videos are really great. Honestly, um, I think everyone should watch them. Like I, I watch French horn. I watch the French horn ones, and they're really good too. I mean, I watch all yeah. sorts of ones. They're really, really interesting stuff right there. Um, <laughs> the uh, right. also those uh, like blooper reels at the end. Like, are those like scripted right. ones? Like, tell me about them. No, I mean sometimes people will do skits, but they're very much unscripted. They're basically like, okay, do some funny stuff for the end of the video, <laughs> or you know, if there was some something that they caught earlier on camera, like a really bad crap or something you know um but uh no it's very much just like let's just have fun and like you know you can bring in props i know kyle smashed an entire trumpet for one which was what? quite quite dramatic uh, i think that was 2019 2020 maybe it has um, been it has been like garbage trumpet or something i don't know i think it was actually an expensive trumpet oh if i God. remember correctly i don't know if he got it for free or and it was defective but anyway hey but yeah. smash your trumpet you will get views <laughs> I mean, really, though. I mean, that's what, like, you know, Markiplier and, or the Beast, Mr. Beast does and stuff, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, I should say also that those videos are largely unedited. Um, there is some splicing um, just, you know, to get the best takes. Yeah. But, yeah. like, um, unlike some uh, YouTube YouTubers I know, um, like, the the sound is very much just directly from the mic. Like, there's no there's very little post-processing done. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. That's really cool, honestly. So, um, 
I lost to check the uh, Hot and Horse has like seventeen thousand subscribers, which is really, yeah. which is really nice for a, from a pedagogical standpoint. Jumping back to New York a little bit, how would you uh, how would you rate the similarities and differences between Dallas Fort Worth and New York City? Did you find yourself liking Dallas more, or did you find yourself liking New York more? What was it really? Yeah, I mean that's a really good question. That's that's a very broad question, and there's oh, a lot yeah. of directions I could go in with mm -hmm. that. Um, but um, I mean, generally speaking, um, I prefer living and working in New York, and I prefer the Met schedule. Um, even though it is busier um, mm -hmm. by possible like up to 20 hours a week busier potentially with depending on the rehearsals and the operas playing in a symphony orchestra it's like you have one one week one set of, of rep you get one shot at it you know and so that can be pretty stressful especially if it's something like held in Laban you get three shots and that's it <laughs> and so like the the Friday Saturday Sunday schedule very much kind of followed this like Friday we have a rehearsal and like okay so we're a little tired and we're still kind of figuring things out. Saturday was usually like, okay, this is pretty good. Sunday was usually the best. And I know this because I was on the recording committee that like submitted things to radio stations. Oh. Um, and so usually what ended up happening is for the most part, Saturday and Sundays were the best, but sometimes it'd be the other way around where Friday was like electric. There's all this energy. And then by Sunday, we're kind of like, you know, conked out or something. Um, so with the Met, being like it's entirely different schedule right mm -hmm. you'll have aida then bohem then something else then another thing and you know you'll play three or four different operas in a week and um the rehearsals for them you might finish a rehearsal on say a, a wednesday a morning of you know one week and play a different opera that night and then you might not play that opera again for a week or two wow. right um, just because of the way like divvying up the schedule can work between Damien and I. So it's very much, it almost feels, um, it feels like there's less pressure because of that, because it's a little more understandable when you miss one thing and you haven't played the opera in a couple yeah, weeks, yeah, right? Yeah. But it's also just the sheer repetition of each one. It feels a lot more it, for like my experience playing like um, a Broadway gig. Um, not that I've done Broadway, but like like a uh, in a musical. It would yeah. be nice to do Broadway. So like, it's just oh, like yeah. you get to the point where you can just kind of like, almost zone out and it, you're, you just automatically kind of play. And obviously you can put in a lot of effort and you can try to play your best, but you almost don't need to just because eventually, you know, especially like on stuff like Bohem that's done every year, you just get to a point where you can just kind of show up and just play. And it's not that taxing, which is unlike my experience in the symphony orchestra where you have to be on the whole concert. You know, yeah. you don't get, you don't get breaks. You don't get, um, you know, unless you're like, I guess like New York Phil say Joe often will um, have the assistant principal um, play the first half of the concert. Right. Um, but still like that's uh, when you're on, you're like very, very on. And in opera, it's a lot more there. There's very few operas where I felt like I've had extended, extended long periods of time where I just had to be as kind of in the zone as um, as a symphonic uh, typical symphonic repertoire. So I think in general, I think, I think what I'm generally hearing is like symphony orchestra, you're playing the same thing three nights in a row. And then opera is just kind of like one concert here, one concert there, you know, if it's great, if it's bad, whatever, you did your best. And next one or. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying there are no standards and obviously like if you're really messing things up, oh like, <laughs> you know, like yeah, it's not good. You definitely kind of have to have it together more or less every night. But especially like by February when you've been going and going and going with very little break. Um, you know, like it's a lot more understandable um, when you're starting to mess things up. Like everyone in the orchestra talks about like, uh, like my first year, I, I remember Barbara Curry, um, one of the horn players who's super sweet was just like, wait, is it your first year here? Oh God, I would hate to have started this year. This year's so hard. <laughs> I'm so tired. You know, like people are very honest and open about like how, how taxing the job can be. And when yeah. you're, when you feel like you're mentally like on your last straw, 
it's understandable that you'd make more mistakes. Um, yeah. And I feel like that's very much more the case in jobs like the Met, where, um, you know, you do just kind of have to just have this thing at the ready, regardless of whether you've rehearsed it anytime recently, you know? Awesome. One of the last things to talk about is Tchaikovsky, the international world cup olympic solo competition that doesn't where it doesn't matter what instrument you play you can play any instrument you're up against freaking violinists you know we talked about like oh violins gets violins are more of a solo instrument than the trauma like maybe there's a stigma behind all that but like you know like talk to me about talk to me about that like how did you even get a spot to compete in the first place yeah. Um, well, first of all, it should be mentioned that this is the first year where brass and woodwinds could compete, period. Before, um, and and I, before that was strings or something? Or? It was strings. I think actually also vocalists were added this year. Maybe I'm wrong. But um, uh, yeah, it was, um, I think, um, what's his name? The head of uh, the Tchaikovsky competition. Um, he's the conductor, Gergiev. Yeah, um, yeah, my favorite guy. Yeah, <laughs> he, he, uh, he actually played, uh, he conducted the Met at a Carnegie concert. So I got to talk to him a little bit about it. And um, he was yeah, like, yes, uh, Let's we do got... It. Yeah, yeah. It's like we got two million dollars to, you know, do blah 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 to fund this new section. I hope it's really well. We need more. We we need more brass soloists. So it was very much kind of like it seems like it was done in the spirit of like really benefiting um, the musical world with yeah. different kinds of soloists, which I, is really cool. That just makes me like him even more, honestly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, anyway, so like, um, yeah. So uh, the first couple stages, uh, the not prelims, um, you have to submit a recording. So like record around, then there's prelims, then semifinals and finals, and you're not actually competing against the other instruments until the finals. Mm. Um, so um, it's very much in like the brass area. Um, and then, um, yeah, so like, uh, uh, what was your question? Sorry. Yeah, just just kind of what was it like, really? Oh, my God, it was, it was... <sighs> I, it, it's of all the things I've done in my musical career, this was one of the coolest wow. by far. Like, um, but you didn't it make is, it that far. I mean, maybe you did. Tell, tell me, talk to me about it, man. Yeah, no, I mean, I definitely wish I could have gotten farther. This, um, that, uh, was during my first season with the Met. Um, and, uh, and so it was very much, uh, like we were doing the ring cycle at the end of it and yeah. so many other things. I was doing seven shows a week, like, and I think a couple weeks before I had to actually fly out to Russia, I was doing that. Right. Mm -hmm. So I was exhausted just like, cause it was a ton of rep, like, uh, from the, for the solo competition too. Like it was a full recitals worth at least like an hour, 20 minutes worth of music. Um, and I started learning it like only like a month and a half, maybe two months before the competition. Um, just because I, you know, like. It was more important for me to not flunk out of the Met than it was for me to win the Tchaikovsky competition. So, like, if I didn't have the Met job, I think I, uh, I mean, this is maybe sounding a little bit arrogant, but yeah. like, I think I could have made it to the finals if I just had as much time as I, I needed to to work on just the solo rep. Mm -hmm. um, but making it to the semis with that and at the high, that high of a level of competition was to me like really, uh, um, a uh, really cool thing for me just like personally like it to me it kind of solidified that like yes i have the right to to say things in my solos i have the right to kind of say i think that it should go this way you know yeah. so um, who who else made it to whom else made it as as high as you did do you know i think i know peter steiner was one of those competition peter steiner made it to the finals um mm -hmm. i know that um I don't remember the name of the Russian trombonist who got first. There was also a young horn player who uh, they got. They both got first, actually. Mm -hmm. um, and then um, uh, 
Oh my yeah, I'm blanking on the names. It's been a couple of years since I've oh, had yeah, to think yeah, about yeah. it. Yeah. Um, but the list is is available publicly. Mm-hmm. Um, I think on their website. Are you planning on competing again? Do you want to compete again, or just kind of? Like- yeah. Um. Honestly, like one of the saddest things for me getting out of college and and really just winning uh, the Fort Worth Symphony job is that I'm no longer allowed to compete in most um competitions. And granted, those competitions are really geared more towards college aged players. Anyways. Younger players. Okay. Yeah. And so I get that. Um, I can do, um, you know, there are uh, international concerto competitions. There's uh, there's some in Italy, I know, uh, the Tchaikovsky competition. I'm still eligible for that one. The if Assuming that brass is still there, I can do that in 2023. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's very much something I would look forward to. I think eventually, um, you know, I'm probably going to cool it and just do recitals when I want to, uh, you know, get my uh, solo uh, kicks. But um I, I, I don't know something for me about competition in that very direct way. Like you are the 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 one player competing, right? That's that's like um a really big driver for me still. Why does it have to be younger players? Why can't it just be any age? I mean, what what if we or should we or should we force ourselves to make competitions for our older players? You know, in the five k they have age groups like eighteen and 21, 21 and 24. and then uh, the old people they're they're kind of yeah. so dumb. I don't know. <laughs> it's an interesting idea. I think yeah. the reason probably why competitions tend to skew younger. Um, is as partially like um say for the in the case of the tchaikovsky competition or maybe another international competition like that um they are in the business of of making money and i think a lot of times what happens is okay the piano player wins or cello player wins the grand prix now they have like a three-year deal with um whoever the tchaikovsky foundation people are whatever and so they you know they now have managers they now have a schedule they're soloists and they're gonna get tickets right they're the next hot thing. And so I think it's a lot easier to do that um, with younger players than older ones. Um, and frankly, an older player might have, you know, a family and they might not want to tour all over the world for years on end. You know? oh, I think I get it. I think I get it now. It's like if you're young, you're still exploring in the musical world. You're, you're doing these competitions. Maybe you win some, maybe you get second place. But but I, but I think it's like you're getting yourself out there. You're more open minded to actually per- compete in them because what? Actually, this reminds me. Actually, a part of me wondered, like, why can't Joe Alessi just kick everyone's ass in Tchaikovsky and just win it all? Because let's let's face it, he's still the best trauma player in the world. <laughs> but, I yeah. mean, I mean, it's just like it's just like why, why does why can't he just kick everyone's ass instead of just like all these young people trying to be the best and and, and some old experienced guy, like, eh, I'm just gonna <laughs> and, and you're, I don't know, you know? Yeah. You know, what's, what's interesting is I, I think the interesting thing is that if Joe Alessi were to compete, um, he might not win. I think mm-hmm. the sheer fact that he would be in the competitions, let's say he does this regularly, right? He wants to win every Tchaikovsky Grand Prix or something. That would, I think, create m- even more drive to over to topple him, right? Alabama like, football. <laughs> right, yeah. So I think um, it would actually incentivize people to work even harder than they already do. Mm-hmm. Like nothing is nothing is better than an underdog story, right? Yeah. And you know, Joe Alessi is not perfect. I've heard him, you know, crack a note before. Barely, he barely cracked it. I've seen a performer recital for the New York Philharmonic. He he he's made he's made missed a few. Uh, there, there are some fast passages. I think he maybe missed some notes maybe twice or three times throughout the whole piece. I mean, it happens. Right. No, beings. it's obviously still impressive. Totally, totally. And I think one more thing is just like when you reach a certain age and you kind of 
you're you're more likely to have found the place that you just find you just call yourself home and you you kind of want to stay there and you 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 don't need a competition to tell you oh I need to be somewhere else because right. life is life has kind of t- brought me here. I mean competitions, young people traveling places, not like that. That's that's an exciting time of your life, you know, going places and exploring the world, competing and you know finding more ways to c- compete other than just college, basically. Because when when you're the best in college, like what are you gonna do? Just win every time like no maybe have these competitions for around the world maybe around the country and what they do is like allows you to push yourself further than other other schools themselves otherwise would maybe that's why i guess right i really like uh the movie fearless with jet lee um uh, i'm trying to remember it's based on um a true story of um this uh the, the guy who the chinese man who founded um the wing chun school of uh martial arts and like some competition meant for like young people to kind of like especially like, young troubled people who need some order in their life right yeah um but he supposedly never lost a competition in his life mm. after his very first one mm. um never lost a fight rather and the movie is just really it's a really fun movie, What's the movie uh, again? personally fearless wow um in the movie like when he fights his last opponent where he dies from being poisoned in the fight but he still wins anyway po- poison like, is it is is this oh is this someone is this someone poisoning him to win or something what yeah effectively like he became like uh the without i mean i have to go into the plot a little bit basically like the he was fighting the most famous japanese martial artist and the japanese uh federation or something wanted to ensure that their country would win the fight mm-hmm. so they poisoned um this guy who never lost right um anyway um but he says something to the fight the the two fighters are actually like very uh very cordial very professional and they respect each other a great deal right yeah um and uh and so like they have tea beforehand and one of the things that um jet lee's character says and i'm blanking on the name but yeah jet Mm. lee's character is like um competition is not about winning or losing it's about finding out who you are you know Mm. you learn something when you compete and um and you win or you lose, you learn how you react. And I think the implication is like, yeah, you kind of learn what you're made of. You learn what motivates you, yeah. you know? And, um, and especially as a fighter, like, especially like at, at a high, the highest level, it's hard to really test your skills, um, in, in a way that means something. Cause like, what does it mean to be able to double tongue at like 500 beats a minute or whatever, <laughs> unless like outside of context, like what if that's not fast? And I don't know I'm exaggerating. Like, what if what if you're actually the worst double tonger in the world? You know, mm-hmm. so like competition is a way to get get context for your skills, right? And I think um, that's it's a really powerful tool for that because it makes real, uh, to me at least, it makes it very real um, why uh, what improvement is, right? Because mm-hmm. like to me, like like especially in the pandemic, I think a lot of people are finding out the same thing. It's like without the social context, like the ability to compare ourselves daily, even not in a necessarily like harmful way you know just to like say this is how i stack up you know um and i with real people right there like i feel like that social drive missing that has affected a lot of people's motivation it doesn't feel like practice is for anything you know mm-hmm. um and i i've definitely been afflicted by that it's been really hard to um to uh practice to the same level or at least the same like degree of like concentration and seriousness as say okay. when i was working on the tchaikovsky competition um, so I'll, I'll, I'm looking forward for, you know, us for, for that coming back. Awesome. Awesome. That, that, that sounds excellent. Those, those are very wise words and very, very w- 
wishful ways of thinking, honestly. I think that's really great you shared that. Tell me about the trombone you play, and um, do tell me the reason why it's not the average trombone out there. Yeah, so... Um, do you mind grabbing it for me? I mean, I, I think my eyes would like to watch to see it. Sure, sure. Yeah, give me just one second. I got to extricate myself. So this is uh, my trombone. I, I guess I can hold it back here. There we go. Is that a yeah. Gittleson mouthpiece? It is, yes. What? Yeah, I still have my uh, my... Uh, Greg Black that I won the audition on, but this I got this when I was um, a junior in high in college rather, and so it's just I've just developed past this particular mouthpiece, and um, so I'm just trying out some new ones. Okay, while I've got the time. Um, it's really the Gittleson mouthpiece is really good. It's um, really you know to me it's like one of the zippiest uh, mouthpieces I've I've ever played on, but it has like such a like warm tone and like the low range just pops out like more so than similar uh, mouthpieces of similar size that I've played on before. Awesome. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah. So basically the, the biggest weird part is just the twin valve, obviously. Um, this is just one valve. But um, the reason I went for this is when I first played it compared to my Thayer valve, it just seemed like the the mid to upper registers of the horn just held together so much better. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really lose all that much from the, the trigger range. Mm -hmm. Right. So like the only thing I really noticed about the trigger range was that I couldn't quite I couldn't play quite as loudly. But I was reasoning that like, I don't really need to project lot like low notes that loudly most of the time in, in orchestra. And if I did, I can always just switch out the valve, right? Mm -hmm. Um, or, or play a bigger mouthpiece. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, actually, um, and also like just, um, moving between, uh, partials or move rather moving in and out of the valve just seemed like with the twin valve, it was a lot more fluid. Like, um, yeah. the, the pop just was a lot less of a thing. Mm -hmm. Um, so that was the decision there. Um, it looks like it would be really tinny and like maybe even more tight than a rotor, but it actually, to me, it seems like it's a very good cross between a rotor and a Thayer valve. So actually like beside, besides just having one valve, what do you get out of having two valves as opposed to just one really? I mean, tell me, tell me about that. Well, it's two rotors, but it's one valve compositely. Like, so, I mean, if you look at the connections, you know, intake of air, outtake of air, um, it's, it's, it works the exact same way. Um, and the, the benefits are really just what I told you. Like it's, it's, um, it comes from triple horns because apparently triple horns have to do similar things. I think that's where the tech mostly comes from, but, um, you know, in typical Shire's fashion, like the, it's a really well constructed, uh, mm. quote unquote double valve. And so it, it just works really well. I mean, um, so if it didn't, I would probably still be playing on my Thayer valve. Okay. I just know that like by having two valves, the, the tubing doesn't have to bend as much, which, right. which, which has benefits and pros and cons. Really. At the last trauma day that I played in at my university, this was 2020 before the pandemic and all that, I did plan that. And, um, I just, I didn't like it that much because articulations for me are just very stuffy in the middle of the lower registers. And it was just really, I just really wasn't liking it. I think this is because I have very delicate articulations, and that was also why I like the Collins, the Colin Williams trauma the most. Because um, on the horn I have, it's a great horn, Bach forty two or it's over there really. Um, it's great. It's just I I I can't seem to figure out articulations in middle to lower registers. Maybe with, maybe through lessons, you and I can work in that, or or I can just or I can just settle with the columns because like when I played the Colin Williams showers, I could just start. Yeah, and it was just like, what am I doing to make this work? Honestly, it can't happen anywhere else. It's just like because I can't, I can't, I just can't do that on what I have right there. It's just like maybe I do. Response in different ranges for different horns is is definitely 
a big probably the the most um, apparent difference between different horns you know maybe besides tone um i i find i actually started on a version of the colin williams horn only i uh chose a different colored bell it was still like the same seven bell but it was medium weight and mm-hmm. it was a rose it was like um seven y m g or, or seven m g y or something like that it was like gold and it was like gold here and then yellow brass here and oh, it wasn't wow. uh it was, you know, it wasn't, didn't have the screw bell. Okay. Um, and, but, every, and everything else was the same, I think. Um, but, um, and that's what I won the Fort Worth Symphony job on. Um, but over time I switched to a lightweight, uh, what is this, uh, TW47 lightweight slide, um, which just doesn't have like the nickel uh, here. Yeah. Um, and then a, uh, th- for this horn, besides the cut bell, which was uh, different to match the Mets Courtois sound, it's um, a T27YLW. So the flare is just slightly wider. And I actually, I did that to kind of compensate a bit for the way the the um, the twin valve responded. It all, um, it all, just get a little all, more conical tuning. It all happens to a lot of trial and error. I guess the last thing we can talk about is um, when the pandemic started for you and what you've done to keep yourself busy, really. I feel like when people ask this question, uh, it can be multiple things. It's like, what are you doing to maintain your practicing? And the answer to that is not a whole lot. Like I'm having a hard time with that. (laughs) But like, you know, like um, the idea that we should be busy, I think there's definitely some merit to that. Like I find I work better when I have a a schedule, you know, like like I have an external reason to be here or there, right? Um, That that I practice better with that situation. So like having a structure to your environment, I think is important. Yes. Um, And so honestly, it's just been hard to create that. Like all of my work is virtual. You know, I don't have to actually physically go somewhere to do it. Um, and, uh, you know, I had my first gig in a year last month um, or earlier this month, actually. Wow. So, like, it's just I don't know. I mean, what am I doing to keep busy? Uh, TV and video games, mostly, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, I don't know. Honestly, like, I feel like it might be a little bit of an unrealistic expectation that um, just because we have all this extra time in the pandemic, some of us, you know, some people don't. Some people are busier. Yeah. But like, just because you have all this extra time does not necessarily mean that you're in a mental state to use it. You know, mm. like I think I think um, Americans in particular have this kind of pull yourself up by the bootstraps ideology. Like, well, what do you mean you didn't want to practice? Just go practice. You know, what's wrong <laughs> with you? Just go do it. And it's like it's a little more complicated than that. Like you have to you have to deal with motivation. You have to deal with um, like I said, structure and what that does. Like basic psychology. You know, like I think treating yourself like um, for me, like at least at Baylor in particular. Um, learning how to practice four hours a day, even when I was busy, for example, yeah, like yeah. Um, that took I, it to me, it felt like I was tricking myself into being in the practice room, like, oh, I'm just going to be in the practice room with my trombone and nothing else. And <laughs> I don't have my smartphone with me. So what else am I going to do? You know, but the first step, right, the first step was turning my phone off, keeping it in my locker, you know, and walking up to the practice room and just being there. And it's like, what else am I going to do? Right. <laughs> so, um, you know, so to some extent, I've, that's that's helped a bit with the pandemic. Like, well, if I'm working on a uh, multi-track uh, project, a YouTube video, might yeah. as well practice a bit while I'm here recording, you know. Um, but it's it's not the same as as just having those social reasons, those external, you know, that I have a concert to play, you know, like that's yeah. so much more powerful. And I think pretending like that isn't the case doesn't really do anyone any favors. It's not like backing off in practice is going to end your career. I mean, if I take two to four weeks off i will still know how to play the trombone get back into it i took two weeks off the horn last last summer and immediately i could play high f for the first time ever <laughs> for, for whatever reason i mean you, you know what i'm getting at here or 
Yeah, yeah, I do for sure. Um, I will say like the last big break I had before this pandemic um, where I did not have to play the trombone every day really um, was fre between freshman and sophomore year of college where wow. I took the whole summer off. And it did, I do hate, I generally kind of don't like the feeling of losing progress or being out of shape, like um, both, you know, physically, like with, you know, like uh, with, and, and then also on the trombone, like, but at the same time, like, even though I felt like I kind of had to relearn some things in a different way from before, the process of learning that there are multiple ways to fix a problem um, was really useful for me. That kind of taught me something in and of itself. And yeah, like that rest aspect, like, I think a lot of us don't always realize how tired we are, both mentally and physically. Mm -hmm. um, and and so like when you take a, an actual rest and then you come back and then you realize you do like playing the trombone, that can be really powerful too. Yes. Um, and like you said, yeah, like the range thing, I definitely noticed like, wow, my super refs are so much less taxing these days. <laughs> it's like I still have them and I play enough of them to keep them. But like I have never been able to project a high F, a super F, as high as loudly as I can nowadays, which is pretty cool. Yeah. So I think that really, it literally was just that I was tired beforehand. Awesome, awesome. Is there anything else you would like to share with my audience? Any like last words of advice, like how to run Medoc Medop audition, and don't <laughs> just and don't just say practice, honestly. <laughs> no, I, I think that's the worst advice. It's good advice, but it's like anyway. I mean, you know, drink lots of water. Uh, you know, get plenty of sleep. Honestly, <laughs> I, like I the sleep that. thing. <laughs> Uh, one thing I learned, um, and I have not been able to find this study, so maybe I dreamed this, but it still has helped me, is um, the idea uh, that sleep is actually the most important factor in success um, for like sports and, and music and stuff, because practicing is really learning. You're learning how to control your body. And it's a different kind of learning from like remembering, you know, uh, the date or name of a history event, but like it's still learning. And it would make sense then that you would learn better and retain more information if you are well rested, right? Um, so that would be the biggest thing um, that I would suggest, especially once things get back to normal, and it would be really easy to not prioritize sleep sometimes. Yeah, like basically, like, uh, the way I kind of figured it in college is if you have an hour, and you can either practice during that hour or, or go to sleep, you should probably go to sleep, mm. you know, get that hour in tomorrow. And this one's gonna sound kind of hokey. But this one really uh, was a very powerful thing in my met audition in particular. Um, but you don't do yourself any favors if you motivate yourself to practice through negative self-talk. Like oh, um, the story I remember hearing about was um, some some Russian uh, powerlifter. Yeah, like he he apparently had some some pretty pretty tragic losses in his life, some deaths in his family or his loved ones. Oh yeah, and he would motivate every he basically the way he motivated himself to lift ever harder and push himself in the gym was he would imagine that every time he did another set or another lift that he could bring his loved ones back to life. And you can see the pain on his face. Now that's an extreme example, oh boy. <laughs> but like, I think we do versions of that kind of thing, that bargaining, that negative bargaining. Um, he ended up quitting, never, you know, touching a barbell again, I'm assuming. Um, but like, you can motivate yourself either through like habit or negative self-talk or positive self-talk. And I think in the long run, the positive self-talk is obviously, it's the harder one to do, um, but it's it's the best one. So that, that can even include things like it's okay that you don't feel like practicing today. That's normal, right? What Because then what it allows you to do is say, what would you be willing to do then? What can you do today that would be, that would progress, that would, that would give you some progress, right? Maybe you listen to a new piece of music. Maybe you practice a little bit, just not as much as maybe you're trying to push yourself to. You know, it, it allows space for creative thinking, whereas negative self-talk, I think, is very much diminishing. It puts you in this hole like, 
you're not practicing today. Other people are practicing today. You're oh, falling yeah, behind yeah, and you're going to be a failure. Oh my you know, God, it's like, yeah. It's, yeah, it does not really, it's very not, it's not a creative process to think that way. And, and the reason I say it's so important is because I really do think it catches up with you when you need your brain to work with you the most, which yes. is on audition days, you know, like if you haven't practiced um, countering your worst negative uh, self-talks, it's it's naive to think that they will not come back when you're under pressure. Oh my like, God, yeah. um, just one small example, William Tell, um, obviously a difficult excerpt. Um, and I remember thinking when I was working on it for the Met audition that like, you're just basically like, you're not gonna work this up. This is This is too hard for you, you know? And I remember thinking like, wait a second, that's a stupid thought. Like I've worked on the bourgeois concerto. I won a concerto competition on the bourgeois concerto. This third, the third movement is way harder than, than William Tell, like technically. So like, this is just a matter of time. Just put in enough time, you'll get better. And yeah, so like, obviously that, like that's a more motivating thought than, yes. you know, this is pointless, I'll never get better, right? right. So, um, so I think it's so easy to think that you should just push yourself harder, just think whatever you have to do to get yourself in the practice room. But I think that ultimately you're going to reach a point where you burn out or you reach a plateau that you can't get past because you're trying to you're trying to um, beat yourself up for not being good enough. And then that sets up a recurring cycle where you're never good enough. And then what are you practicing for? You know? Exactly. A, a lot. A lot. That's very true. Honestly, I mean, most like most people start getting most people will learn they start getting better when they focus on themselves and stop stop worrying about, oh, well they're probably they're practicing and i'm not you know just like focus on yourself stop comparing yourself to others don't look at that youtube video of, that, of this of this guy playing so on and look at yourself and be like well, what the fuck am i doing <laughs> screwing up all the time <laughs> i'm guilty of that for sure oh boy yeah well i really took a lot out of this interview um john i really i really did learn a lot i really can't say that enough um i i just want i just wanted to tell you even if you don't think that no absolutely um it's always fun to do this uh do these kinds of talks um i think it's helpful for me period just to get a chance to air out these concepts you know and you know me if you if you've seen me on trouble pedagogy you know i like to get into it <laughs> yeah yeah um, absolutely but, uh, yeah so all right yeah it's great talking with you thank you so much have a good night man and i uh, hope hopefully we'll see you in person yeah hopefully all right see you see you man